We have two um, stories to read here this morning. The first one is the coming of the kingdom of God. It's verse 20 of Luke 17. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, There he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And it will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Chapter 18, the parable of the persistent widow. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's great to be with you today and thank you to those of you who have been uh, congratulating me on becoming a a grandfather and asking me how I was doing. Uh, I'm doing well, although after three days of contractions, I was quite tired. Uh, Kate, Kate and Richard are going well and Oliver's doing well. So it's, the, uh, it's much easier being a grandparent than a parent, actually. So it's uh, all, the, all the benefits and none of the disadvantages. Uh, we come, we're continuing on in, in Luke's Gospel. It'd be great to have your Bibles open at those parts that were just read for us as we just engage with them. Uh, 
as you've been, now I haven't been here, but I understand as you've been going through Luke's gospel, you've been looking at the provocative things, challenging things that Jesus says. And uh, last week, if you were here, you would have looked at Luke 16 and seen that it, it sort of looks like Jesus is commending dishonesty. Uh, the uh, un you know, the, the sort of uh, steward who's dishonest to his master seems to be commended by Jesus. And as you consider that incident, of course, what you're being told is that the steward is someone who can see the future and acts now. So Jesus is commending him for his shrewdness. But I want to suggest that as we come to Luke chapter 18 today, Jesus seems to take it a step further. He's not just commending this, this uh, unjust steward and saying, be like him anticipate the future and act now, have eternity in mind and be smart. Uh, He seems to be suggesting here in this incident, this parable in Luke 18, that uh, God is sort of a bit of a a sort of reluctant to answer, grumpy sort of heavenly father. Uh, That's the sort of image that you get. Now, uh, Jesus is sort of just prodding us to help us think about what is going on, how we should think about prayer, how we should think about the times in which we find us. But we do need to wrestle with this. So I'm going to pray that God will help us do that. And uh, there's an outline there that might be useful as we go through it. So let's pray that God, God would help us understand his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. And we pray that in your kindness, you'll help us to understand your word today. Uh, Father, we thank you that Jesus is provocative, uh, that he is challenging We pray that our hearts and minds will be challenged as we think about our relationship with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The other day, uh, Sue and I were in our house with a few people. We were entertaining, uh, but we didn't realise that we have one of those uh, bells, chimes for our front door bell that you plug into a socket, and it was switched off. There was someone out the front ringing on this bell thinking we could hear it, and we weren't able to hear it. So we're just carrying on, entertaining people. The people at the front door could hear us having a great time and obviously not answering our bell, you know. And uh, they, they just thought we were being rude, not coming to our door. When you come to this parable in Luke chapter 18, it seems to be saying that God is a bit like that, that God is sort of deaf when it comes to answering prayer and sort of geriatric because he's so slow. That's the sort of picture you get. There's a judge, verse 2. In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. Uh, The Talmud, with the Jewish rabbinical sort of teaching, uh, it said that village judges of this age were notoriously corrupt. They'd pervert justice for a dish of meat. Okay, they they are easily malleable. He's a guy who doesn't fear God. Uh, He has no sense of accountability to his maker. And he doesn't care about people, doesn't care about men, no concern for his fellow citizens. And the other thing is he's totally unembarrassed about being selfish and self-focused. Like when you get to verse 4, he even agrees with the assessment of himself as being sort of selfish and unjust. That's the judge. We then come to the widow, verse 3. There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. She had a good cause and let me say normally women in this first century context didn't represent themselves at court normally someone who was a male relative would represent them and plead their case she has no male to do this right she is all alone 
In the Old Testament, it said of the powerless that they should get a fair hearing. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17 says uh, to God's people, seek justice, correct oppression, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow, plead for the widow. But this widow is too weak to force the issue. She's too poor to bribe the judge. That's her situation. But she does have one weapon in her arsenal. One. Verse 3. She kept coming to him. She kept coming to him. She is going to plague this judge until she gets justice like a dripping tap. And it's, a, it's actually a brilliant technique. You shouldn't try it on pastors. But everywhere else, it's a really smart way to approach life. You know, like we have just had uh, Oliver born this week, right? Nine pounds, nine. He's a good, robust size. And, uh, but, you know, like just quietly. Don't, don't tell Kate and Richard I said this. He's a bit useless, really. Uh, you know, he's sort of just got this wobbly little neck, you know, and he doesn't, can't do much. He's not lifting weights or anything. You know, he's... He just lies there, right? I mean, sort of cute, but just a bit hopeless, you know, at this point in time. But that's what, that's what babies are like. <coughs> but here's the thing. Uh, when they want something, babies know how to get it, don't they? <coughs> no mother or father can resist that for too long, right? It's just that exhausting scream until they are fed, right? That's the widow, and it works. Verse 4, for some time the judge refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? A widow attacking. You get this sort of picture of this feisty grandmother, you know, Uh, this sort of (laughs) feisty grandmother, you know, like... And it's probably not a great translation at this point. Um, the attack me phrase here that's translated for us, it, it is a prize-fighting term. Right? So it's a boxing sort of idea. But the image it's trying to convey is the idea of getting blackened under your eye. That's sort of, you know, get a, a black eye through boxing. That's the sort of picture that's being conveyed. And the idea here is that this woman is never going to give up And just like parents who are deprived of sleep when a newborn comes along, this judge knows that if he doesn't give in, he's just going to get black under the eyes through weariness and exhaustion. And so for the sake of self-preservation, he gives in. So this widow doesn't keep on bothering him. Okay? There we have it. That's essentially the parable. So what's the point? Well, we know it's a parable about prayer. Verse 1, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. It's teaching us something about prayer. But what is it teaching us? Is it teaching us that God is like the judge? He doesn't answer prayer straight away. God is slow to respond for some divine reason known only to God. He just plays deaf on a consistent basis when people pray to him and call out to him. And, you know, that actually fits with a lot of people's ideas of the way the world works. You know, God 
if he exists, has sort of set the world in motion, you know, sort of wound it up like a toy, rolled it out, and it'll just keep running and running and running, and God won't interfere, he stands back, and eventually it'll wind down, and then that's the end. See, people sometimes have that sort of picture of God, and some have interpreted the parable that way. Or people have then taken it to a different extreme, and they've said, no, 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 the parable's all about having the secret formula to getting answers to prayer. And you'll see that I provided you with the secret formula there. It's the emphasis on working hard at prayer where X plus Y equals Z. Right? The key to answer prayer is X, getting a large number of Christians together, plus Y, getting them together for a long time praying. And if you have enough Christians and pray for enough time, then you'll get Z, the answer to prayer. And I've read so many popular books on prayer that they wouldn't be as crass as I've just put it down like a mathematical formula, but they describe prayer that way. The reason God doesn't answer prayer is because there aren't enough of us getting together on a regular enough basis, praying for long enough overnight and being passionate about, enough about the answers, right, so that God will answer. Right? You've, read, you've read books like that on prayer. Do you understand that that's not Christian? It's not biblical, it's pagan. It's pagan. We cut ourselves before God and cry out to him day and night and fall down and, you know, and gobble answer our prayers. If only we did that more often. That's rubbish. Right? And it's, it's such a dim, negative view of God, isn't it? Such a demeaning view of the God of the Bible. So that's not what it's about either. It's none of these. But how do you work it out? How do you work out what the Bible is teaching us here in this parable. What I want to suggest to you is that parables are like good sermon illustrations, right? good, good illustrations. That is, a good sermon illustration, uh, you should have a Bible teacher who opens the text, explains what the text is saying, the verses in the Bible, then an illustration will drive home the point in the text. Uh, it's a risk that if your illustration is too good, it drags the text into it. But, but the idea of a good illustration is you make the point that the Bible is making and explain it or illustrate it in some way to emphasise that point. Parables generally, the stories that Jesus tells, generally function like that in the New Testament. Jesus teaches on a certain topic and then often illustrates it by telling a parable or a story that reinforces what is going on. So when we come to this one in Luke chapter 18, what has Jesus been teaching and how does this parable illuminate the teaching? That's the sort of question. So in this, this approach, context is king. That is, understanding what Jesus has been doing around this parable will help you understand it. The wider context, you'll have, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll have picked it up. Uh, we're in what's called the tra travel narrative. Luke's got not a very creative way of talking about the travel narrative, you know, but, um, but it's the section from Luke chapter 9 to Luke 19 where Jesus in Luke 9, verse 51, sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And then in Luke 19, verse 28, we're told he arrives in Jerusalem. Luke 9 uh, to Luke, Luke 19... Sets his face, gets there. So we're in that sort of section. We know that uh, Jerusalem is a place where Jesus will suffer, die, 
rise again from the dead. So we're in Luke 18, we're just before Jesus gets there. Now, who is Jesus speaking to? We pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. He's telling his disciples a parable. Back in chapter 17, verse 22, again we're told that he's talking to his disciples. So it's the close, serious followers. It's not uh, the crowds who are also listening in at various points in this travel narrative. It's the inner group. And what's he teaching about in the immediate context that we're looking at? Well, it's about the kingdom of God, but more particularly, it's about the days of the Son of Man. Verse 22, the days of the Son of Man. It's the way Jesus talks about himself and what he's going to do. So at this point in Luke 17, Jesus is talking about when he establishes the final rule of God. The final day of judgment is what he's got in mind. And as you read through that last part of Luke chapter 17, he explains that there'll be no warning. Uh, That is, everyone will be getting on with the normal activities in life. Babies will be getting born. There'll be weddings. There'll be funerals. There'll be clips of 500s. There'll be working, sleeping, eating, drinking, you know, eating breakfast before you come to church. Everything will be going on as normal, right? That's what's going on. And then Jesus will return for that day of the Son of Man. And some people will be so absorbed in their everyday lives or distracted that they'll be surprised. And there'll be others who'll be keenly anticipating his return. That's the context that we're talking about. So let me take another run, a second run, at trying to interpret what this parable is about. I want to suggest to you the point of this parable about prayer is to encourage Jesus' followers to pray and to trust God while they're waiting for Jesus to return in judgment. That's the focus. These disciples, remember, we're in Luke chapter 18. They're following Jesus, Luke 19. Jesus will suffer, be mocked, criticised, die on a cross, be buried, and then in due course rise again from the, the dead. But here's the thing. The disciples are entering into a time of intense conflict and opposition for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus then rose again from the dead and he explained to his disciples that he would return. Luke 17, the day of the Son of Man would be coming. And so you have these disciples who have their Lord and Master who's died and risen from the dead and now ascended. It anticipates the ascension and the fact that they will live in this age where they wait for Jesus' return. But it's a time of conflict and challenge as they wait for Jesus to return for his beloved children. Now, I want to suggest that it actually is essentially the same for us. We live in between the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension and his return. And these are contested times. They're contested times because we'll be ridiculed uh, for being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We'll be told that we're emotional cripples because we believe in a God we can't see. There'll be all sorts of ways in which you'll 
be mocked, even told you're immoral for some of the things you now hold to. We'll actually be told that we're irrelevant. It's interesting. I was reading in the, um, the Australian yesterday. You will have all seen the, the big furor about the Cooper's Brewery Bible Society thing this week. And it's hit the press in the Australian big time with letters and articles and things like that. Uh, Dennis Shanahan in yesterday's or the Weekend Australian was writing an article about you know, the ability to engage in, in freedom of speech around these sort of issues and, and, and being quite critical. But he made a comment uh, about Christians that I thought captured something in the age in which we live. Let me just read you a, a small section from it. He said, until this week, the tactics of those supporting same-sex marriage has targeted groups and individuals who were not regarded as mainstream or ordinary. And he says, so the people who are not mainstream or ordinary that have been targeted up to date are people like church people. They're not mainstream or ordinary, are they? Just sort of a bit sort of irrelevant over here and religious cranks or fanatics not attracting sympathy or popular support. Do you, do you understand how he's categorised believers at this point? The sort of marginalised irrelevancies in contemporary Australian life. But my guess is we're going to face more of that uh, in the age in which we live. And we're not to be rattled by it. It's just the way in which our society is operating and functioning. That's our situation. So what does this parable teach us? Friends, God is not like the unjust judge. I mean, the point of the parable is that the judge and God are contrasted. The judge is ignorant. Uh, he, he avoids God. He's self-interested. He is unrighteous. That's his, his nature. But Jesus has already been so very clear on what the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is like. Back in Luke chapter 15, uh, the picture of God as a father who is out chasing the lost son and who has compassion and mercy and grace, a heart that is just so full of love and purity and generosity. So when we come to this argument with the unjust judge, it's not saying... Jesus is not saying that God is like the judge. It's a how much more argument. That is, if the unjust judge, if this ratbag judge, if this self-interested and self-motivated judge, if he eventually gives justice, how much more will the loving Heavenly Father respond when his children cry out to him in prayer? Of course he will. It's the contrast that's going on there. Remember, this is spoken just before Jesus went to the cross. And so as we sit on this side of the cross, it's even much more as an argument because there in the Lord Jesus, you see the compassion and the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God just writ large across the whole universe because of what he does for us. God's eyes and ears are always turned towards his children. So how should we pray as we wait for Jesus to return. Revelation chapter 6. Uh, Revelation's an interesting book, but uh, you get this window into heaven. And in heaven, when the fifth seal on the scroll 
is broken. What we're told in chapter 6, verse 9, is that the souls of those who've been slain for the word of God, that is martyrs, and for their witness, they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? And I think it's the same sort of idea when we come here to Luke chapter 18. See, as we wait for Jesus' return, we live in an age of persecution, uh, of martyrdom, where you'll be opposed because of your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We also live in a fallen world, a world that's full of temptation or heartache, where we know death and illness and injustice where Christians are treated as irrelevant, where there are wars, where there are famines. That is the nature of the world we live in. And God says he promises to hear our prayers and answer our prayers as we cry out to him. Chapter 18, verse 7. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Of course he will. Yes, he will. But when? But when? See, when will this happen? When will justice be achieved? When will the heartache of having beloved friends and missionary sisters dying of cancer in a hospital, when will that come to a stop? When will God do this? And we're given the answer. It's in verse 8. When the Son of Man comes. When the Son of Man comes. In the meantime, we're not to lose confidence or waver. We're to keep praying and longing for that day. That day. But then, here's the obvious question. And uh, if I haven't sort of put you to sleep, this is the one you should be asking. The question is, why does God delay? Why is God holding off? It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 8, notice what it says. He will see that they get justice and quickly, quickly. Now, quickly, I normally don't associate 2,000 years with quickly. I normally don't put those in the same sentence, you know. Jesus is returning quickly. Oh, 2,000 years later, we're still waiting. doesn't seem that quick. The word quickly here conveys that idea of short space of time. But actually the idea is, is suddenly. It, it's not sort of a, the length of time. It's talking about the surprise associated with it. The, the, the striking nature of when it will happen quickly, without warning. And that fits actually with the whole context of what Jesus has already been teaching on. And then you get this in verse 7. 
Will he keep putting them off? You know, quickly, will he keep putting them off? Will he? That phrase there, putting them off, it's the Greek word makrothumio, right? I'm just pulling out my, I've been to college and you haven't card at this point, right? Just to make you feel intimidated. I hope it's working, you know. But the, the word here, makrothumio, it actually is worth knowing, not remembering, but worth knowing what's going on here because it, it's not talking about putting them off. It's talking about mercy. So the better way to read it is how long will his mercy extend? How long will it extend? And as you read through what's led up to this point in time, this parable, what we've seen is the mercy of God being measured out through Jesus. He extends mercy in chapter 17 to the Samaritan leper. He receives mercy through being healed. In chapter 18, a bit beyond where we've been reading, the blind man is healed. When you get to chapter 19, the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, receives mercy. These are all people to whom the mercy of God is extended. See, that's the age we're in, where God's mercy keeps being extended to people as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it's in the context of the delay of Jesus' return, uh, we read these words. The Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, the mercy of God, the time is extended so people have more opportunity to repent and believe. Then the parable, it finishes with the question that we all need to answer. Right, verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Friends, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, the ride is not easy. Jesus has promised us it won't be. There will be outside pressures, uh, persecution. People will think you're stupid because you're a follower of Jesus, or maybe just irrelevant as things unfold. That's sort of an anachronism from the past, you know, that uh, just popped its head up again. And I want to say to you, it's actually not easy being different. None of us, most of us, don't like standing apart from the crowd. But to be a follower of Jesus requires that. We know that there's heartache and grief because of the nature of life in this fallen world. There is death. We've been confronted with that with Steph. Uh, There are people in this room who've had a a peer in their 20s uh, just die this week in a very sudden sort of circumstance. Uh, We know the grief that comes with that sort of heartache. There is suffering. At times you feel overwhelmed uh, by pain going on around you. There are internal pressures. And we know that we wrestle with doubts. And we know that some of us wrestle with depression or other mental illness. And then there are just the, the everyday distractions. There's just the pressure of living, keeping the cogs turning on life, to keep showing up every day. Busy, tired, just making ends meet. 
But friends, this parable and this teaching is about praying and not losing heart as you wait. Praying and not losing heart as you wait. So we're to learn from this widow. We are to stay the course. We are to run the race. We are to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who rose again, the one who ascended, and the one who has promised that the day of the Son of Man, the day of his return, is coming. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you you long for that day, don't you? Don't you long for when he returns, when you see him in all his glory, when he brings about justice, when he establishes righteousness in the world. And yet if you're like me, while I long for that day, I'm so pleased that he keeps extending his mercy, that there is a window of opportunity. And so I find myself in that sort of torn space where I, I long for his return because I hate some of the things that I observe going on around us. And yet I long for the mercy of God to be extended to those who don't yet know it. Friends, that's who we are as God's people. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray. But when the Son of Man comes, see, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find you waiting with keen expectation for his return? Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this teaching. We thank you that Jesus is, is in so many ways just in our face at this point. And yet not just in our face. He digs into our heart. He taps into the, uh, the sort of concerns and heartaches and, and pain we experience in this world, the opposition that comes with being a follower. And Father, we pray that uh, we will hear the word of the Lord Jesus. We'll understand the times in which we live. We'll understand that your, your face and your mercy is constantly turned towards us and extended. And Father, we pray that we'll live with that eager anticipation for the return of your Son and yet be so delighted that we'll live in the age of the extension of your mercy. And we pray that you'll, you'll help us to live in that gap. Uh, to do so faithfully, not overwhelmed by living in this world, uh, not overwhelmed by the needs of people to hear the gospel, but rather with our eyes fixed on you, the one who has made the promises and who secures us in the Lord Jesus for all eternity. And Father, we do cry out. Uh, we cry, come Lord Jesus, come. But we also cry out, keep extending your mercy and using us to do it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.